Well, morning, everyone. Um, so I think you probably represent the hardcore of the South by Southwest uh, contingency at the moment. Uh, I know it's a horrible day outside. It's horrible weather. Uh, the clocks have gone forward. Either, uh, either you knew that and you made it here, or you're looking for a different session, uh, or perhaps you're still hungover, um, and this is just somewhere warm. Uh, but either way, I'm glad you're here. Um, this talk, uh, excessive enhancement, that we'll get to in a moment. Um, again, a bit more clarification. There was some talk on Twitter about this being uh, a talk called sex enhancements. Um, that, that isn't what this is. Uh, that's not the talk you're about to hear. Frankly, I'm not that guy, uh, sadly. Um, so my name's Phil Hawksworth. I work uh, at an agency called RGA, uh, who are based in New York, but also have an office in London, which is where, where I come from, uh, and I'm a technical director there. Um, and this talk, uh, excessive enhancement, as I say, not sex enhancement. I'm, I'm always keen to move on from this slide, because anyone's taking pictures uh, this team seems to be the one that gets back to my family, uh, and they think I've gone down a different line. But, but no, I'm, I'm basically a JavaScript nerd, uh, and less specifically, I'm kind of a front-end developer nerd. Um, uh, and so we'll get into exactly what this excessive enhancement is in a second. A um, couple of bits of housekeeping. Um, the hashtag for this, uh, for this talk um, was SXXS, because I'm trying to make it as much of a tongue twister for myself as possible. Now, I know that at South by Southwest, they were, they were having this kind of prefix on all of the ta hashtags, and then they dropped it, so it was this. But I think, actually, SXXS is more likely to be able to be a bit more distinct, so I think this is probably the hashtag to go for. So as I mentioned, I'm a, I'm a front-end nerd, um, and so you know, I've got a bit of a, a front-end focus. Uh, I'm really concerned with things like the, the bleeding-edge effects that you can have in browsers these days, uh, and kind of doing optimization for browser performance, giving the best possible experience for the users. Uh, and all that kind of browser shizzle, you know, the exciting stuff that we can do in browsers these days, that's the kind of stuff that I'm particularly interested in. Um, a little while ago at a conference in the UK called Full Frontal, um, which is predominantly a JavaScript conference, um, a guy called Simon Willison, who's a, a smart, smart guy who you may or may not know uh, from his days in like, setting up the Django project and working at The Guardian, now works at, at Lanyard, um, he did a talk on, on Node.js, which some of you may or may not know uh, as being you know, really a legitimate way of using JavaScript on the server and a very performant way and has, has lots of benefits. He gave this talk uh, at Full Frontal uh, a couple of years ago, and that really piqued my interest. And I remember uh, after that talk going off and kind of trying to get more information uh, about Simon's talk. I couldn't really remember the name of the product. And I have to tell you, it's, it's a brave man that goes to Google. And you know, so, the nicest Simon is... I did find myself wanting to add kind of particular search terms to that query uh, to prevent, you know, any dangly bits. Um, so, <laughs> just said dangly bits at South by Southwest. Um, so, with Node.js, Node that does kind of give us opportunities for working in the front end and working in the back end. So, it's kind of the whole pantomime cow of web development technologies available to, to JavaScript developers now. But the things that I'm kind of interested in particularly, and especially in the context of this, this kind of presentation, is that browser shizzle. It's a really exciting time for front-end developers at the moment. You know, we've got, got abilities to do all kinds of great animations in the browser. We can do great animations. We can do great 3D effects these days. Uh, and we've got opportunity to do all kinds of interesting you know, data visualizations in the front-end. But, you know, I'm here, I think, really to issue a bit of a word of caution. Um, and... If 9.30 in the morning, you know, with a bit of a hangover, is too early for you guys to be listening to a JavaScript nerd 
kind of wag his finger at you a little bit. If you're not going to listen to me, then listen to you know, the, the wise Jeff Goldblum, who in Jurassic Park, uh, playing you know, Dr. Ian Malcolm, had this fantastic quote, which is, you know, the, the scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, that they didn't stop to think if they should. And I think that's particularly pertinent at the moment in the world of front-end development. Um, the consequences in Jurassic Park are different to the consequences of doing things badly uh, on the web. But you know, when it comes to developing experiences for users and developing software and applications for the user, you know, sticking with Jurassic Park for just a moment, um, you, know, you, you can go down a dark road if you do things just because you see an opportunity that you can rather than it making sense. So there's a bit of a risk for me uh, at this conference when we're talking about exciting things and exciting things to come that I could basically be... Captain Killjoy a little bit, bit of a wet blanket. I don't want to be the guy that says, you know, you can't run with scissors, uh, chew with your mouth closed and all that stuff. But I care quite deeply about the web, and frankly, this stuff is kind of important. So getting back to this topic, you know, excessive enhancement, what, what does that mean? Well, I guess really the question that I'm asking is, are we going too far with JavaScript to enhance our sites? And I'm a JavaScript guy, so I, I kind of love this stuff. And I'm going to concentrate more about the why than the how. There have been a few more technical talks uh, at this event, uh, and you'd be, you'd be um, well advised to kind of check those out um, and stick more about with why this is important. So I kind of cast my mind back uh, a few years to a time when I was working at British Telecom in the UK. I was working with a very talented guy called Paul Downey, and Paul and I were both tasked with uh, producing some kind of pop-up, uh, some kind of pull-up um, presentations for a little event we were going to. And so we went off and we kind of went and built our, you know, drew our little things that were going to go onto these displays. And I fancy myself as someone who can push pixels around a little bit, has a bit of an eye for design. So I went off and you know, opened up Photoshop and crafted this, this display that had you know, all manner of drop shadows, shiny corners, you know, fancy little things, frankly a little bit devoid of content. Whereas Paul put together something called the Weber's Agreement, and it was just this, this mental uh, pen and ink drawing that he did that... Um, now, he kind of dubbed it as an uber-doodle about the web. And, and this is what it looks like. And you know, don't try and strain your eyes to see all the content. You, you, you can't do it. Um, the links to this will all be uh, kind of shared at the end. But this kind of pen and ink drawing that he did got like, tens of thousands of hits on Flickr by the time that you know, mine was getting any audience at all. And it kind of espouses these different kind of philosophies in development. And you know, there's like, the, good, the, the light side on one side with openness and collaboration. And on the other side... You know, there's Mordor soft spewing fear, uncertainty, and doubt into the air. Um, a lot of opinion in this, uh, and lots of things that may be a bit controversial. Um, but I, I love some of the little details. Um, you know, on the on the lighter side, there's this this uh, the principles mound that he's got topped by the W3C and IETF, and all of these great little principles kind of dotted around on there. And you know, like uh, cool your eyes don't change, and uh, getting a page is safe, and all these little principles. Um, I also really like kind of one of the darker parts of it, uh, where you've got the, uh, the passport fracture there, which is kind of sealed across with the open ID repair, so some com commentary on identity on the web. And this thing is chock full of kind of little nuggets, and I recommend checking it out. And so after I was kind of reeling from my humiliating defeat after crafting something that was glossy and he'd produced this, you know, I was just starting to recover, and he produced another thing called the URI as the thing. Um, and this is what it looks like. It's even denser. And if anything, it kind of shows that Paul needed perhaps a tiny bit of therapy. And maybe this was the therapy for him. But you know, we'll just take a quick glance of it. And, you know, it's kind of um, uh, reigned over by Tim Berners-Lee there at the top, the creator of the World Wide Web. And, 
and also Roy Fielding, who, uh, who, who wrote the, the paper on REST principles, which we'll touch on, but we will not really get into. But I really like, if we just dig into one little part, there's a great kind of labyrinth in the center, uh, which has got some good stuff in it about, you know, your position is your state and the value of the back button. And it's worth pointing out right in the center there, you know, beware the cookie monster, which I kind of like. Um, and there's also another nice thing uh, on, the, on the very right, you can see um, a, a mailbox where you can post your, your request for change, you know, a commentary on how you make requests uh, to change state on, on the web. So one of the outcomes of this for me was really this message about agreement on the web and how it's built up of standards and agreement and really the contract of the URI. Um, and as I said, this isn't going to be a lecture on, on REST or REST principles, but it's worth just keeping in mind that there's a principle at stake here where the idea should be that you make a GET request for some stuff on the web and you get a representation of the content that lives at that resource. Um, it's this principle of ask and you shall receive. And so, as I said, this is kind of a bit of a cautionary tale, mostly because I'm seeing that there's a, a chance here and we're kind of on the precipice of making some mistakes that we've made in the past. Um, with all of the exciting things that we can do at the moment, you know, it's a, there's a very real risk of being seduced by the power of, of all of these possibilities. And this kind of this war chest of, of tools that we've got at our disposal you know, has, this, has a bit of a name right now. It's HTML5, whatever that is, because actually it can mean a bunch of different things, uh, and different people understand it differently. Um, web developers amongst us realize that it really is you know, a specification that builds on HTML4, but lots of people think of it as all of the other exciting uh, browser technologies that go along with it. You know, CSS3 gets bundled in there. Uh, all of the other buzzwords that uh, people at agencies and people I work with sometimes uh, like to um, get excited about. But the, the thing that I really notice is that with this set of tools, we're starting to make some of the mistakes that we made before with Flash. Um, now, when I joined an agency a previous, in a previous life, uh, I was talking to a very talented designer there who'd made all kinds of things with Flash in the past. Um, and I was starting to espouse some of the principles of you know, open, open web standards and kind of designing and building things with the web. Uh, and he dubbed me, you know, he said, oh, well, you're, you're just a member of the anti-Flash mob. Because he'd, he was sick of people waggling, his, waggling their finger in his face and saying, you're doing it wrong. And you know, let's, let's be honest, there is a bit of a snobby attitude, kind of a class-based attitude in many web developers. No one likes to judge other people more than web developers, I find. I know I've been, certainly been guilty of it. Um, and when it comes to pointing the finger at Flash, there's some kind of common criticisms that web developers often, often call to. You know, it's this, this issue of often uh, content can be frozen on the page. You know, it's difficult to copy and paste things out of there. You know, the, the position that you navigate to within these kind of Flash sites sometimes is hard to bookmark. Uh, it's not necessarily very accessible or, you know, searchable content isn't, isn't necessarily present for, for Google and what have you. And when I level that kind of criticism uh, at, at Flash developers, very often I get the same response, and it's this. You know, Flash can do that stuff. You know, what are you complaining about? And I love it when people say that to me, because that's, you know, I want these things to be better. So I obviously have the same response every time, which is great. Show me. Point to an example. There are examples on the web of things done really beautifully in Flash, but there are also a lot of, lot of examples that are less so. And I think that's because... A lot of the people who are building things with those tools care a lot more about the aesthetic and you know, what the pixels look like than the web. And you know, maybe that's okay. Not everyone needs to be caring for the structure of the web. 
But you know, what is valued by the developers who've created that stuff? Why has it come to that? You know, how did they get here? Um, and in many cases, I think that's because the, you know, they've arrived in this place and with this kind of attitude um, because you know, they've, they've been very, they come from a very creative background. You know, they're build, building things in Photoshop, exploring the rest of the Adobe suite, and finding you know, that, uh, their way to Flash to build out all these incredible interactions that are really exciting. And, you know, and, and who, who, uh, who can blame them? But ultimately, I think you end up in a place where you kind of care more about the sex appeal of stuff that you're building than about the web. And again, it's this seductive you know, seduction of what's possible for you. So if we just kind of cast our eyes back a little bit um, uh, over the course of the life of the web, you know, we've really had an increase in sophistication of just the tools that we can build things with, uh, the way that the browsers can perform, but also the sophistication in what the user, that level has increased. The sophistication of the users has certainly increased over the time. You know, we're building much richer experiences. We need to now because the, the audience is so much more sophisticated. So if you take a look at this, which is purported to be the first website, um, you know, this is still accessible and you can still find it on the web now. The content's just as visible as it always was. Um, but you know, there's not much sophistication here. It's just a document. But then that's what it was intended to be. If we step a bit forward from that and look at 1996, which, by the way, Jeff Goldblum had moved on by this, to this point. Uh, you know, he was saving the world from aliens with his MacBook Pro. Um, but the web looked a bit more like this at that point. So this is McDonald's site, you know, circa 1996. Um, and I suspect that you know, the, the people that put this together, first of all, were answering the brief of it's got to be read, which is, you know, tick, done. They've got a nice animated GIF on there. But if you look at the content, there isn't really much content there. We didn't know what we were going to be doing with these websites at that point. And if you click through from that kind of holding page, you end up at this, which is, again, there's not a lot of content. I think the first link that you get to see there, which is, you know, is a link to go and see the fine print, which is... Obviously not what we're really keen on doing now. This image at the top, that's the, the main form of navigation, and users didn't know how to, how to interact with that. They hadn't learned how to do that, and perhaps the affordances weren't there. So there's even some description underneath of how to navigate into the content. You know, and there's, there's two routes you can take. You can either click on the kids to go into the kids' content of the McDonald's site, or you can click on the adults and go into the adult content of mcdonalds.com. You know, I really don't know what that is. I'm kind of thinking some kind of sexy hamburgers. But you know, either way, that's the way you'd have to get in. Another example, you know, just continuing to look at 1996, is Pepsi.com, where you know, by this point we'd learned how to tile background images, which is why you've got uh, this incredible effect. But if you look at the content on that site, again, really it's just some instructions on how to use it, what kind of browser plugins you need to install in order to get at it, what browser itself you're going to need to install uh, to get at this content. So, you know, We've, we've seen this, this in the past where it's, there's some barriers to getting in. I like this example a lot, actually. This is Lego site, which, again, has got the, the um, animated GIFs that you'd find any, everywhere. But at least at this point, we're starting to see um, some global navigation coming in and you know, links that you can follow. But again, you'd probably agree, not the kind of sophistication that we have now. So if we spring forward to almost the present day, so this site was launched at the end of last year. Um, and it's a site for Volkswagen, for their, their Beetle, uh, Beetle car. It was launched originally in Germany, but there's a dot-com version now as well. Um, and this has a much richer user experience than the kind of things we've seen now because the users demand it. And fantastically, it's built with open web technologies, which you know, someone like me is always going to be excited about and happy to see. But I'm going to be honest, I kind of think it sucks a little bit. So let's take a look at what this looks like now.
Okay, so everyone's still here, which is good. Um, so that took about 13 seconds. Uh, and what you got for waiting 13 seconds was some operator instructions. You know, it says, now scroll. This puts me in mind a little bit of the McDonald's example earlier on where you know, you'd come to the site and it just told you how you then had to engage with the site. You couldn't be expected just to find your way and you needed some instructions. 13 seconds, as anyone who works on the web will tell you, is an eternity. You know, I could have sat down and had a little rest, read the paper while I was waiting for that. Um, people are going to be dropping off if, they're, you know, if, if they've got to wait that amount of time. So why on earth did it take that long? Well, it turns out there's a very good reason. So to get to that holding page, what's happened is your browser's gone off and downloaded 11 megabytes of images to deliver that to you. And it's done so with a whopping 251 individual HTTP requests. So it's gone off to the server 251 times, asked for something, waited for that connection to be, to be set up, retrieve the content, and then done something in the browser with it. Of those 251 individual requests, a lot of those are missing any kind of cache expiration data in the, in the headers, which means the browser can't cache those. So next time you come back, when you're going to show your mate this cool site, you, you have to get all of that content again. So obviously that's a huge bottleneck for the experience for the user, but also really expensive at the other end as well. So this really is... Uh, oh, but it's not such a bad thing. You know, there's um, over time, they're doing some things that are right. Uh, they're progressively loading some of this content in. So as you navigate around, it pulls in the rest of the images. It grows to 15 megabytes of content for this single web page. Uh, and it grows to 316 uh, HTTP requests, which is, you know, it's kind of epic. It's a bit of a bloated experience. Now, I've worked on lots of car sites over the years. And car sites are often quite fairly kind of over-complex, over-engineered, um, and people really want to see all kinds of flashy, exciting things happening on car sites. Um, there's a site uh, which you may or may not be familiar with, that people from the UK might be. This is Ling's Cars, um, which I think represents a particular di design aesthetic on the web, let's say that. You know, it's, it kind of really resembles something more from 1996 than something from now, but and I, actually I should move on from this because people with hangovers are probably not... not faring too well, but if we look at, if we unpack this a little bit, that site, which, you know, with all its eye-bleeding kind of stuff going on, that's, you know, a slender four megabytes of images come down there, which is arguably still, you know, three, three and a half too many. Um, that makes 314 individual HTTP requests, which, again, is outrageous, but I'd argue that the people putting that site together were probably not such a, um, considered to be domain experts in building websites, you know, Volkswagen have gone to an agency who are going to craft the best possible experience to it to, for them. And even then, they haven't been able to get it down to 314 requests. They've got 316 on Volkswagen. But, you know, it's, it's not, not all bad. Let's actually look at the experience you get when you, when you get into there. And as you, as you arrive at the site and it's, it's loaded up, you start scrolling down and you know, it's start, the site's using all kinds of CSS3 and JavaScript techniques to do this, this kind of funky rendering. You know, although this, this image here... Um, you'd think, since it's you know, an image of a car, it's, that's ripe for being sliced up. You know, we could, slice, we could send one image down, slice it up, using sprite techniques um, to build this thing. But in actual fact, you know, this isn't a sprite. These are all individual images that are being used. So it kind of frustrates me, because we know better than that now. You know, we, we know how we can get these things into the browser faster and just kind of reduce this kind of overhead. Um, as you continue to kind of browse through the site... Um, uh, the, the navigation at the top kind of changes to show you where you are, and eventually you get to some kind of more common 
interface paradigms like this, this uh, horizontal carousel and what have you. But ultimately, you know, it's a lot of toys at work here. And you know, I think Jeff would have something to say about that. Uh, and in fact, you know, I think if you pressed him, he'd probably say that really is an awful lot of, lot of HTTP requests for a website about a car. But either way, you know, there are results here uh, that aren't as dramatic as that. But again, it's, I wonder if it's the best possible experience and the best possible use of the technology. But, you know, good news. This thing is going to work on an iPhone because it's been crafted with web technologies. We're not relying on Flash here. We're doing things the right way, right? Well, yes and no. In actual fact, if you go and hit this URL, if you hit it on your, your, uh, your, your laptop or a desktop machine, you're actually redirected to this, which is the full experience, what, what I've been looking at just now. And you know, I've, I captured that, uh, that, that uh, movie on this laptop, which has got 8 gigabytes of RAM, it's got a, a beefy processor and a graphics card, and I could barely touch it when I was, when I was rendering that, because it's, it just has so many performance demands. I could cook to steak on my, on my laptop. Um, if you hit it with... Uh, an iPhone or a mobile device, you're actually redirected to this, this um, URL, this reduced experience. Now, credit where credit's due, again, the experience there that they've crafted, which is a different site but has the same kind of design, that's a really lovely experience, and it's been done really nicely, and it's quite engaging to use on your phone. But if we're going to deliver two different code bases, two different sites for the same, for the same content, for the same site, then I kind of wonder about maybe was the argument to build it with open web technologies the right thing. You know, there are lots of things in that site that are behaving just the same way as, as if it was Flash. So I wonder if maybe it should have been Flash in this instance. Um, so yeah, it's great. It works on your iPhone. Um, but who really cares about iPhones and who cares about iPads in these places? Well, you know, I do. I'm a sucker for shiny toys. and I, I like these things. Um, and frankly, it's been wonderful that so many people have got these devices now, and critically, the people who make decisions in business. You know, the people at the top who are saying, you know, I'm going to sign on a dotted line for that thing. I want it to work on my device. That's been kind of useful for people like me who've been championing open web standards for a while. Because we all know that Flash doesn't work on those things. So, you know, it gives us an excuse to push that point. And you know, the execs who are signing, off, signing on the dotted line, they want it to work on those devices. So that's been really useful for us. But... At the same time, are we then targeting the real audience? Um, possibly not. There are lots of people who experience the web that aren't on those, those devices. So let's return to our kind of example again, and I don't want to just kind of linger too much on this, this example, but there's a detail that, uh, that bothers me, and I need to kind of share for some therapy. Um, so again, as we're hovering over the global navigation, you may just be able to make out at the bottom there that you know, there's a URL associated with that piece of the content. That's great. It looks like they're perhaps hijacking the links and progressively enhancing with JavaScript to build this kind of content, this kind of experience. But in actual fact, no. If you were to take that URL and type it into the, the browser, uh, your address bar, you wouldn't, in fact, be taken to any content. You'd be taken to the home page. They're not actually doing things in a way that means that you can bookmark any content. So it's kind of a shame that they're not hijacking the links. When this did the rounds and there was a lot of kind of uh, attention that went onto this site, certainly in the office that I worked in. Um, the same uh, designer who kind of criticized me for being a member of the anti-flash mob saw this part of it, and he, he was angry as well. He was really furious about it, because not because of the, the web standards and the, the way that it had been built and the way it was kind of didn't degrade very well and all of the rest of it. 
his opinion was this, you know, when the car moved, you know, why don't the fucking wheels fucking move? Because he observed that when cars drive, the wheels go round. And he really cares about, did you not know that? Okay, good nugget. Um, so he really cared about the pixels, about the experience, about the way these things were being conveyed. And that really bothered him. So it was interesting to me that, on the one hand, there's someone there who really cared about the pixels more than about the web. And he was a bit cross. And there's myself really caring about the way that it would behave as a citizen of the web. And I was feeling a little bit you know, put out as well. So there's a standard thing that you do you know, when you're looking at how well something conveys content on the web. And that is you turn JavaScript off, JavaScript off, right? You take a look at it without. So let's do that. Let's see what it looks like. Well, it does render into the page. But what you get is just the very first stage of that loading screen. Now, we know now that really you need to take care of users that perhaps don't have JavaScript on there. And that's, they're not ignored. You know, there, there is a little bit of content that through the, the no script tag is kind of vomited onto the page without any styling. And if you're, if you're quick, you'll, you'll spot it up there. Um, that's a really shitty experience, right? I mean, th there's essentially no content there. You know, what is the address of the content? There should be content at every URI, really. And you know, these, these URIs that, that make the web a web. So I wonder, is it that we're kind of forgetting about how the web works? Or is it, again, that we're just being seduced by these possibilities because we can make something that's really lavish in the browser? Now, you could argue that I've been talking about this site for a while. It did the rounds, and it got a lot of attention. So perhaps you could argue that this is an effective campaign, right? You know, the, the agency that was commissioned to do that drove a lot of traffic and a lot of awareness to this site. You know, what about kind of the longevity of that? How long is this going to be accessible and be, be discoverable on the web? You know, are we hitting all of the users that might want to see that content? Or are we just targeting people who've got browsers with particular capabilities? Um, those kind of considerations, I think, turn something from being a good uh, platform or campaign into something that's great. And that's, that's kind of worth remembering. Now, I don't want you to think that I don't really care about the exciting uh, possibilities in the browser uh, and that I keep on banging on about URLs and the importance of being able to just get stuff very easily from a URL. And you kind of indulge me for a second since we're talking about URLs just to talk about Facebook and you know, entities within Facebook. At RGA, we do a lot of work with Facebook and we build a lot of campaigns and a lot of platforms that leverage Facebook and all its capabilities. But... Something that kind of irks me a little bit as someone who really cares deeply about the web is seeing things like this. You know, there's a, a kind of attrition in understanding of URLs and what they mean and, and, and you know, how they work. And you could argue that this is great for the user because other people understand what Facebook is and how to interact with it. But this used to be a URL and you're not seeing URLs anymore. You're seeing things like this. And... Oh, I said, this one really bugs me when I see this. It's just I don't know what to do on Facebook to get that thing. And, you know, you, could, you, know, you can perfectly say that Facebook is starting to take off. You know, it's getting to be quite popular. Um, and it's probably going to be around for a while. But there are other things on the web that we always assumed would never go away. And they're kind of dwindling and they've gone. You have to remember what happens when this becomes this. You know, where does the thing that you've built live on the web? How do people find it then? You're also... Um, party to all kinds of constraints of that platform, because you don't really own that domain. It's, it's really akin to renting that space on the web rather than buying it, owning it, and controlling it. Rant over. Um, so if we go and look at some other examples of, of the big boys out there on the web and how, how they're doing things. You know, Twitter.com, 
Um, if you talk to someone who's, who works at Twitter, uh, they'll, they'll tell you that Twitter.com is not a website, um, except kind of it is a little bit. You know, this is what Twitter.com looks like when you, when you go and experience it in your browser. Uh, you get your content. You get to see it. Um, Twitter position themselves as a platform, right? And everything uses the Twitter API. That's, that's the kind of the message and the positioning. Uh, and so the website that we just saw is actually known as the Twitter web client. Um, but, you know, I, I experience it, and many people experience it as a website very often. So let's, let's hold it to some of the same standards. Let's look at it, perhaps, you know, without JavaScript. So how does it look without JavaScript? Well, until quite recently, this is how it looked when I went to Twitter.com. Um, a lot of the logic and the, the, the shizzle is being done in the client, in the front end. So this is what it looked like. You know, it's that kind of empty experience. Now, again, credit where credit's due. Twitter have, have addressed this now, and now this is what it looks like. So you know, when you arrive at Twitter.com without JavaScript, they give you a very nice message, nicely formatted, much better than what we saw a few minutes ago, um, that does tell you uh, that, it's, that they make a lot of use of JavaScript, uh, and so you should ideally turn it on. But they still give you some content. This is Twitter.com. Unfortunately, if you go to a specific tweet on Twitter.com, you, you get the same content, you know, because that URL isn't really a URL that refers to content. This isn't what you should, should see. This is what you should see when you go to that URL. It's a very different experience, very different content. So you could argue, well, nobody has JavaScript disabled, right? No one's experiencing the web in this way. Well, Frankly, that's kind of missing the point a tiny bit. There are a lot of people, in fact, that still do experience it that, that way. We talked about that in some sessions uh, yesterday. I think Chris Mills was talking about uh, government sites and government uh, users who often don't have the full extent of JavaScript available to them. There's also all kinds of uh, assistive technologies that struggle with JavaScript, or if they do support JavaScript, support it quite badly. Um, and also, you know, what about this contract of the URI? What about expecting to be able to get some content at an address. If you go to the same address each time and get, get differing content or not the appropriate content, you know, that feels like a bit of a failing. So what were Twitter doing? Well, you know, they started using this pattern. So you know, for the address, they'd start to use, use this guy um, so they could do things in the client rather than in the back end. And they're starting to redress that now. They're, they're doing some great work to, to take that pattern out uh, and, and make sure that those, these links do resolve to the same content as these kind of fake links from before. But in actual fact, the damage is done a little bit because they've always got to maintain that bit of code to reroute that stuff um, and guard against the link rot that will incur, they'll be incurred otherwise. So, so what was this thing, this, this kind of hash bang or the shebang as it's known? Um, and, you know, and why use it? Why use it? Well... There's good reasons to use it. Uh, years ago, uh, when we wanted to start doing things in, in the client a little bit more, client side, we discovered that we could get at the content that was, that was at this hash. You could get at this variable by looking at win, window.location.hash. Um, and that allowed us to do all kinds of interesting client-side routing, client-side processing. And critically, it enabled us to build things that depended on the front end uh, that had history navigation. So you could... You know, enable this back button so you could navigate in a way that was more familiar in the browser. The problem with doing that, where there's different content uh, rendered using uh, the hashed location of your URL, is that different content could be opaque to the Googlebot. You know, we couldn't index it. We couldn't 
we, could, we didn't know that we had to do some AJAX to go and request that content on that page. Uh, so Google very helpfully uh, went off and they kind of codified this pattern uh, of this hash bang where you'd, you'd use this construct and Google would then know that some AJAX was going on, that requests were being made for additional content, and they would know how to go and spider and get at that content, which is a good thing. Uh, and so that pattern is, is described nicely here, um, and so you can start using that yourselves. But for me, that's a bit of a problem again, because we're, not, we're kind of breaking down these fundamentals of the web of content living at particular URLs. And you know, when did it get so hard to crawl the web to get at the content? When, when did it get so hard to write a spider that would perhaps be the next Google, the next search engine that could go and find content around the web? Now, this kind of interface shizzle, these kind of effects, don't have to break the URI. And a really nice example, I think, is GitHub. Is there anyone here who works at GitHub, by chance? Okay, that's probably for the best, because I'd show you a little bit too much affection, I think. I love GitHub. They do some amazing work. Um, GitHub, if you don't know, is a resource for sharing and collaborating around software on the web. And this is kind of what it looks like. You know, it's a, uh, this, is, this is a site for, um, for a particular JavaScript library. Um, and this is the code view. So at the bottom, you can see how you can navigate through, through, the, through the hierarchy of that code. And if, when you engage with it and kind of navigate through by clicking on the links, uh, there's a nice little effect that happens. You don't leave the page, but instead some Ajax... An Ajax call goes off, grabs the next bit of com content, kind of floops it into the page with a nice transition. So you kind of understand the context of where you are, and it kind of updates the breadcrumb just above there, so you can also navigate that way. And that's all, all really nice. And that's been possible for, for a very long time. What GitHub does, have done, which I think is really, really lovely, is they take care of the URI. So, in fact, as you're navigating around, remember you're not leaving the page and you're not reloading. They're updating that URI. That address changes. So it means that you can bookmark any point of that. You can use any point of that, um, that navigation as your entry point into the site, which means it really lives as a kind of a first-class citizen of the web, which I think is, is beautiful. The way they're doing this is they're using HTML5. They're using the HTML5 history API, which is, in fact, just a JavaScript API for the browser. Um, I'm not going to show particularly very much code, but let's just have a very quick glance at this. Um, so this is a little snippet that uses some jQuery, listens for the clicks uh, on, the, on those uh, particular links that pertain to that section of the site. And then they just use the, the history API, and they call push state, and they pass, pass in a, a bunch of things. There's the, the history object, which can contain any, any serializable kind of content so you can access that later. And then there's a bit of an empty string there. That's actually a title for your page, which many of the browsers don't support at the moment, but they will later. Um, so you can just pass in something empty. And then it's the, the URL that, you're, that, that you want to push into the, the history. And then once they've done that, you know, they go off and they, uh, they use a bit of Ajax, grab the content that they want, pass it to their little function, slide it in in, in, front, of the, uh, uh, in, in front of the user. The other side of the coin for that is that they're also listening for the, uh, for the pop state event, which you know, compliant browsers now emit when you navigate with the buttons. They, just, they listen for that, and then, again, they just they look at the URI, and then they, they slide in the, uh, the, the content that they wanted. So through, through this way, they're, they're enabling all kinds of nice kind of client-side routing, client-side processing, uh, and all of those things that, you know, as front-end developers, we want access to. These kind of practices are kind of becoming quite fashionable in single-page applications that maybe kind of live in app stores or things that are slightly different to the web. Um, 
But single-page tools and applications are certainly becoming very popular at the moment, and these kind of helper libraries that have started to exist to help you get at things like the, the History API are really useful. I like this example, uh, one called Levi Roots, uh, which was done by uh, Paul Kinlan from, from Google. That's a really nice uh, example of a library that, you know, that I love because it's, um, it's, it's tiny. There's very little to it there. Uh, it's completely unobtrusive, so you don't have to change the way you write your markup so you can use it. Uh, and it, is, you know, it really espouses a, 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 this method of progressive enhancement to gradually improve, improve the web. Um, and that kind of uh, helper library that's you know, there and available to us now um, brings me on to kind of data visualization. We mentioned that earlier on. And there's some amazing libraries now to help you do that that do all kinds of exciting things in JavaScript. Things like Raphael processing is incredible for the kind of things that you can do, you can do now in the browser. Now, simpler things like Plotkit that help you build out uh, charts and tables with JavaScript. These are great, and they, they allow front-end developers to build really beautiful-looking uh, visualizations of their data. But again, me with my kind of Mr. Wet Blanket uh, hat on again today, now, representing your data in JavaScript visualizations just depending on these libraries often is hiding the content. That's not always the case, but it can often be the case. So if we look at a, a quick example. This is uh, an example straight off the Raphael.js website where you know, we're using JavaScript to render out a, a beautiful visualization of, of this, this data. And you can interact with that in some interesting ways and get some nice kind of visual feedback. Now, you could see, so our apologies, a tiny bit more code. Um, often you would uh, you'd see things built in this way where the content for that, the data, would be pulled in with some Ajax. So we'd go off and get a blob of JSON, and then we'd do something to, with the library to render this out and then whack it into our document. You know, we'd, that's what we're doing here, kind of calling it, calling some function, popping it into our document. And then we just insert it into the document to something like this. The important thing here is that when you load the page, there's nothing in there, right? It's just an empty container. And some sites even go further, and you know, when they're particularly rich, it's, there's nothing in the body at all. It's all built by JavaScript. Now, this is the perfect place where we could turn to an old friend, right? Tables have become kind of snubbed quite often in web development because we're used to seeing them being kind of abused for doing layout and what have you. But this is exactly where they're great. Um, in actual fact, the example I just showed uh, on, on the Raphael site, they're doing it exactly the right way, which often it's not. And they're actually putting the content in the table in the document. So we can find that. You know, the content is always there. We don't have to depend on JavaScript. And then it's kind of progressively enhanced to, to render that out. You know, the JavaScript picks up the content from the page and then replaces it with a, with a nice rendering. So if we move on just quickly to uh, kind of demos and developer tools. Um, this is a, an area where um, there's been a lot of activity recently, particularly with uh, HTML5 and all of the buzzwords that go along with it. Um, I don't want to make Adobe kind of the whipping boy, but there's, there's an example here that I think is, is worthy of a little examination. Um, this is a site called um, the Expressive Web. And it, again, it kind of demonstrates lots of HTML5 and friends technologies. You know, there's interesting examples of of CSS3 here, um, and you know, this, this is all rendered out with CSS animation, um, and you can change the how high the little man jumps and all of that, all of that stuff. Um, and it's really kind of a, a bit of an example of what can be done, not just with the technologies, but also the, with tools that help you write this stuff. Now, there's another example here of, of 
what is that? Something else in CSS. Now, this is all great, um, and it's exciting, and people like me want to go and play with these tools. But this, this site here is demonstrating like, emerging technologies and emerging best practices. So let's you know, turn a bit of a lens on it and uh, do what we did before. Let's turn off JavaScript, right? Let's see, see how it behaves and how it's going to work. Well, once you turn off JavaScript, we just reload the page there, the expressive web becomes a tiny bit less expressive. There's no actual content on there at all. Um, and in fact, if I just pause it before we move on, um, the, uh, the URL that's being constructed at the top, again, we're using that, that hash bang, that shebang to navigate between the different uh, parts, of the, parts of the site. I kind of question why that's happening here. And this is really an example of demonstrations and sites being used as best practices and people seeing that and taking it and reusing it. Because the only reason that hash bang ever existed as a construct, as a kind of a, a pattern, was because there wasn't something better in the browser. The history API has come along, and that means that we can do it the right way now. This site is an example of emerging technologies to be used in cutting-edge browsers. So why, then, are we using that pattern when the browsers that this is targeting have, are all capable? So it's kind of a an example of these patterns bleeding out across the web um, and kind of propagating in a way that I think is not very helpful. So, you know, this is just, just a demo, right? But the real core is, the real message, I think, is what I was just describing, that something that Bruce Lawson put across particularly well when he said the biggest danger is when that demo mentality leaks into production websites. And that's absolutely true. I think I certainly have been guilty in the past of playing with exciting new toys, seeing the possibilities, throwing them up onto like a little example website, and then referring to those later as ways of doing things into production, doing things that go out to the wider world that should be for a much wider audience. Often, those are actually just examples of things of experimentation and something that might be useful later on. So skipping along to developer tools. Now, I already mentioned that there are a lot of libraries to help you get at uh, the exciting new features in the browsers and maybe smooth the way and kind of allow you to do things progressively. And certainly when we're talking about the capabilities given by CSS3 at the moment where you know, there are different uh, uh, browser prefixes that are starting to be used to kind of, to, to kind of uh, leapfrog us a bit further along, there are libraries now to help us uh, author those in ways that otherwise would be a bit painful. And there's also a, a set of uh, kind of tools and libraries um, where you can build in a developer environment, and that will churn out content for you. I'm really wary of that kind of thing. And again, you know, I've got Adobe on here, but there's also things from other, other vendors, and you know, Censure have got a, actually a really nice tool that you can use. But I'd just say beware of the magic. When you don't know what's happening underneath and what's being produced, there's, there's a bit of a, a need for caution there. Now, I think we've all been in a situation where we've, we've built things uh, with tools that are there to help us, right? And it doesn't always end well. So just kind of wrapping up, you know, I think there are some key things that we need to remember. You know, when we're building exciting things for the web, we need to be careful and kind of take care of the URI. It has meaning beyond just being an address for an application. This is the web. It's not just one big app store. You know, consider reaching all of the users. Not everyone is on a cutting-edge device with a very fast processor. Um, 
know, the web is, is worldwide, and we should be making sure that we, we engage with as many users and reach the biggest audience possible. I think we can value both the pixels and the principles of the web. You know, there are lots of tools that make us, uh, enable us to build things that look beautiful, but let's use them with a bit of caution and make sure that we're not doing those at the expense of the longevity of the site, of the usability of the site, and all of those things that go along with. So really en enhance things gracefully. You know, we've got this idea of progressive enhancement, but do so from a position that is, is useful. You know, your, your lowest common denominator needs to be something of value and something that lives as a citizen of the web where people can get to content. Uh, and also dinosaur-based theme parks often end badly, it's worth remembering as well. So the message really from me is, I think we should need to continue to experiment and explore, but let's do so with a bit of care for the web. Um, and so with that, now I did mention that all of the links to the resources I cited uh, are on the slides. Um, also thanks to people who contributed their images through Creative Commons licenses. Um, this, uh, this talk, the slides of this talk are available at that URL. Uh, and with that, thank you very much. So, um, yeah, I'm not, in, I'm not driving anymore. Can we get the slides back up? While well, we're trying to get that, that back up, um, probably got five or ten minutes to either make a dash to the next session or if there are any questions. No questions. Um, can we get the slides? Can we get that slide back up? Sure. I think there's a microphone probably somewhere. Oh. There we go. There we go. Great. So I don't know if there's, I think there's a question down at the front somewhere. There we go. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, um, all this stuff is like great and I'm all for it. Um, the question is basically when you have time and budget and all of that, how do you, I guess it's a, it's a more of a process question because you can't really factor this stuff after the fact. Like you can't just do quick and dirty and then like, oh, let's go back and enhance it. That wouldn't work. Right. So the question is how do, you, how do you start right knowing that you have little time and a boss that doesn't get it or yeah. um, a client that doesn't get it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. So yeah, question... Question is, how do you get this uh, get this to happen from the very beginning, and how do you sell it in when your your boss or your or the client doesn't necessarily value value that, and you need to buy the time? Absolutely, yeah. I think making sure that you really champion the reasons for this and really explain why it's important, uh, and and how um, perhaps a campaign or a site that you build will benefit over the long run from other people being able to access it and find it. I think that's really important. Um, there is no way to retrofit this stuff, right? You can't go back after the fact and say, well, you know, actually, we need to tweak it and make it live better. It, that never happens. Um, now, coming from an agency, deadlines are tight. The client wants thing as so something as soon as possible, and, you know, and they want it to look a certain way. So that's something that I take quite, quite personally where, where I work. I think it's, it's, kind of, um, it's kind of on my shoulders to try and explain why that's valuable and kind of really champion it to the to the client, it's really, really difficult to do. Um, the fact that there's such a range of devices and audiences, I think, is often a good, good place to start. Um, 
because it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that, well, it works on all the devices I can see around me. You know, it works on my shiny toys. Um, but really having, having uh, the ability to show examples of how it looks on other devices, perhaps, or maybe in situations where the connectivity isn't as great, if you can illustrate that and you know, win the fight with some numbers, often that's, that's the way to, to do it, I think. But it's a, it's a difficult challenge, and um, we're not necessarily very good at it yet, I think. Hi. Um, so you were talking about the history API, and so that's something I've been kind of been dear to my heart for a long time, and ne been, never been able to embrace it because of IE. Still, it's not until IE ten is going to finally finally adopt it. But right. you know, how long are we from seeing that ship? And then even yep. longer before people are are uh, adopting it or you know upgrading. Yeah. So um, what what do you do in the interim to uh, to be able to support you know, kind of the shebang? URL solve that for IE, yeah. And you know what? What kind of alternatives do you see, or, or what? What have you used? Yeah, you know, uh, GitHub is kind of an exception because their audience are all developers who are all on Firefox, Chrome, Opera. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, how do we how do we support uh, the use of the history API when not all browsers are using it? Right. Yeah, that's that's a fair fair question. Um, so I think it's it's again this question of progressive enhancement. You know. You should build things that d depend on that, it, that kind of experience for, to deliver the entire experience. Um, I think having a, building things um, with the kind of best principles at heart where it traditionally will go off to the server to bring content back and not do everything in the browser initially is a really good starting place because it means that you can build things out that are much more maintainable as well. And then you can start progressively using the, these libraries and, and the things like the history API where it's available. But if you're able to fall back to the point that it's going off and making a request to the, to the server and doing things like the traditional request-response way, that's going to help. But obviously, there are some things that you want to do that that's, that's not going to get you there. It's difficult not to crack. You know, I think it's all about moderation and thinking about, do you really need it? And also, do you need that experience to be uniform in all of those browsers? In some cases, you know, maybe some browsers don't need to get that experience. If it's not critical to the the function of the site, I think maybe there's some wiggle room, but agreed, it's not, it's not a tough nut to crack. I think I really like the fact that although um, GitHub could have used the, that shebang pattern for a long time, they held off from doing it because I think they knew that this, this uh, history API was coming and they didn't want to put that kind of friction there so they'd have to maintain that, that kind of bad URL strategy forever. So it's all about kind of Restraint and you know, what's what's really necessary and achievable now. I think right because I know uh, Twitter supports the. Well, I guess they're finally trending off of it. Facebook has done the shebang for IE and then the history API for everyone else. But right. Then you have two URLs, and exactly. so you know how do you how do you? It's kind of that's not exactly a great solution either. Yeah. It does, yeah. Exactly. That's that doesn't really solve the problem at all, right? Because some people are you know, posting different links, and they're always going to then have to maintain that. So, yeah, I, I can see how they're addressing one part of the problem, but the greater problem of you know, these links slowly deteriorating and you're getting link rot, you don't solve it that way. So it's, it's tough. Yeah, it's a tough one. So come on, A10. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Probably got time for one more. There's one over here. First of all, thank you for grounding us again. I 
I started forgetting about progressive enhancement and believing it's it's dead because everybody's so used to using Facebook and Twitter, right? And um, everyone's used to just having JavaScript enabled, and the URI is dead. And yeah, um, so that was really helpful. Thank you. Great. But uh, you work for a large agency, so I'm sure you're aware that a campaign like the Beetle campaign is supposed to just live for three to six months, and <laughs> companies move on, marketing moves on, yeah. dollars are spent somewhere else. Yeah. Some factors just don't matter, like longevity just doesn't matter. Um, accessibility probably doesn't matter. They're not going to try to sell a car to a blind person. So it's how willing, working for a big agency, are you to sell, sell out your values as a developer and technological uh, enthusiast yeah. to meet the marketing demands of, a, of an agency? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think everything in moderation, right? I mean, it's... it's nice to be able to take the purest view of saying we should always do things you know, that take care of absolutely everybody that's going to live forever on the web. And as you point out, it's not always practical. Um, I think it's difficult to say how long a site's going to live for and how long it's going to have value. And I think arguing that a campaign site or you know, a, site, a site that offers information about a particular product, while it might only have a particular lifespan, life, uh, People might want to reference that for years to come. And also, I think there's it's a bit of attrition going on where if you start adding lots of sites to the web that do things poorly, it kind of raises that water level for, for everyone because that's the example that people look to quite often. It's like, well, you know, a big agency's built this. They know what they're doing. They're meant to be the domain experts. And they, this, they just do it this way. It's great, you know, and... So that's the way I'll build things. And then that slowly builds into practices elsewhere on the web. And as a web professional, I want to look after the environment that I work in. I don't want it to get harder and harder and harder to build things over time. And so I think that's a really important message to try and push across. As you say, the client isn't going to necessarily give a toss about that. You know, they want to drive eyeballs to their, to their product. But I think it's important for people who are in a position to, to kind of champion maintaining the web so that it becomes it doesn't become a very difficult place to do this kind of, of execution um, you know we shouldn't shit where we eat right it's, it's we've got to take care of this stuff um, and so that's the that's the position I think I'd take and you know to this question over here as well it's not easy necessarily to, to persuade clients of that but I think it's our responsibility to to do whatever we can to, to push that message along so if you were on the team of the beetle project, what have you done differently? Um, so there's a bunch of things that I would maybe have done differently that just would make it a bit more performant um, in terms of reducing the number of HTTP requests. I mean, that's, um, I'm going to use some agency speak. That's some low-hanging fruit. You know, I, don't, I'm, I said that out loud, and uh, you know, that's, I'll live with that forever. Um, but but that's, that was easy to fix, right? There's, there are images there that were combined to become like a picture of a car, and it was all sliced up. But they're all e individual. You could easily have made those sprites that would have reduced the number of HTTP requests and got that content into the browser much more quickly. Um, I think I would also would have looked to take care of the address of the different sections. You know, as you navigated through, it was spinning you down to different places on the site. And I think it actually would be useful for a campaign site like this to be able to say, okay, the address of the specification of the car lives at this address. Now you, can, you can do that stuff now. E even if it had been done with the, the, the hash bang, you know, that would have been better than not doing it at all, potentially. Right? But certainly supporting the history API and, uh, and, and 
understanding browse the, the URL better to deliver the right content when someone hits it, I think that would be a fairly obvious thing to do. Um, now, I, I didn't work on that campaign. I don't know what kind of time constraints they were under, what pressures there were from the client. So it's, it's easy to stand at a distance and kind of point fingers. Um, but since it's such a, a visible example of something exciting on the web, um, I think it, you know, that's, that's when the examples of how it was built uh, start to become something that other people take on and build other things with. So I think it's kind of important. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I think... I think that's time. I'm probably going to get the uh, the the hook now. So, so thanks very much. <laughs>